Section 42 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 19. The Gossutterzook Tragedy, Part 18. District Attorney Abram Wanger followed with the closing argument for the Commonwealth. He reviewed the formidable array of evidence which had been produced against the prisoner, and pointed out the consistency of the theories of the State as based upon that evidence. Upon the conclusion of Mr. Wanger's argument, Chief Judge Butler delivered the following charge to the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, the prisoner at the bar, as you have learned, is charged with murder. The case of the Commonwealth rests upon what is known as circumstantial evidence. And indeed, where willful, deliberate murder, contemplated beforehand, is committed, it rarely occurs that direct, positive evidence respecting it exists. Perpetrated as it usually is by lying in wait, by means of poison, or by falling upon the victim when no one is by, the only evidence must, commonly, be found in the circumstances attending it. And this character of evidence is ascertained by experience to be little, if any, less satisfactory than that which is known as direct or positive. Where the circumstances relied upon are properly established, and the inferences arising from each one, and from all of them combined, point naturally in one direction, there is no greater danger in following them to their conclusion than attends all human investigation. That we may err in such cases is possible, but so we may where the evidence is direct or positive. The circumstances may possibly mislead, but so may the eyes or the ears or the dishonesty of witnesses. Now, turning to the evidence, we find that on the 11th day of July last, 1873, Gaynor P. Moore passed Bears Woods on his way to Cochranesville. He observed buzzards there in large numbers and a very offensive odor. When returning home, he entered the woods to ascertain the cause of what he had observed and at the distance of about sixty-five feet from the turnpike, he discovered, in his own language, something mysteriously hidden, a small part of which was uncovered, doubtless by the birds, the balance concealed by means of leaves and a thin covering of earth, and with the dead limbs of trees placed lengthwise over it. Obtaining the aid of Mr. Rhodes, who lives some distance away, he returned to the place with a shovel, Upon the earth being raised up at the left side of the body, a bloody shirt was uncovered. Next, the head was raised, and the body ascertained to be that of a man. At this time, the witness says, the face was quite white and natural, and he believes he could have recognized it had he been acquainted with the individual in life. It was now about half-past five o'clock in the evening. They left the grave in the condition described, and— after attempting to procure the aid of a man who drove by on the turnpike, went to Penningtonville and notified the deputy coroner, Mr. Rambo. This gentleman, with several others, started for the place and reached it, as they have said, 
about seven o'clock, being a little before sunset. Mr. Moore also again returned soon after. The color of the skin had now changed and was quite dark, as you heard it described. The deputy coroner had the covering removed from the other parts of the body, and it was then seen that the legs and arms were off. That part of the abdomen which was exposed when Mr. Moore first entered the woods was open, the entrails had disappeared, a mass of semi-liquid corruption occupying their place. In another part of the woods, about sixty-five feet distant, the arms and legs were found, also under a slight covering of earth and leaves. The body, with the limbs, was removed to the turnpike, placed in a box, and then taken to Cochranesville. At the grave in the woods, and at Cochranesville, it was examined by Dr. Bailey, more critically at the latter place, and he has described to you the marks he found upon it. He says there was one opening in the side, between the third and fourth ribs, another, he thinks, between the fifth and sixth ribs, and another between the eighth and ninth, and that these openings were on a line that he found another between the sixth and seventh ribs farther towards the back, and another at the lower part of the breastbone. How these openings or holes were made, the witness is unable to form any judgment, inasmuch as decomposition had probably changed their form when he saw them. He also found a small cut on the left side of the neck, about an inch above the collarbone, not penetrating deeper than the skin. Another incised or cutting wound, commencing on the left side of the neck, under the ear and on a line with it, running across the windpipe, opening it in two places. Also, a small incised wound across the depression of the lower lip, not through the skin, and another wound across the bridge of the nose, breaking the bones and depressing them, apparently made with a blunt instrument of about the thickness of a spade. He also found that the front teeth, four above and four below, had been driven back into the mouth, two still adhering to the gum and two lying loose upon the tongue. Dr. Howard testified that he made an examination on the 18th of July, refers to the wounds on the nose and the mouth, and says the blows by which they were inflicted must necessarily have been very severe. Now, were these remains those of one who had lost his life by violence? The unusual place and unusual manner of interment, the mutilation by severance of the limbs so as to prevent identification, and their separate concealment, the marks upon the body and manifest evidence of violence about the neck, nose, and mouth, the bloody shirt found in the grave, all bear with great weight upon this question. If you find that a murder or homicide of any grade was committed, you would next pass to the question, who was the man so killed? The Commonwealth alleges that it was Winfield Scott Goss. Was it? Winfield Scott Goss resided in the city of Baltimore and its near vicinity in the year 1871 and the early part of 72. He was a brother-in-law of the prisoner. Mr. Barnett's, who knew him intimately, having been employed in the same establishment with him for some years, describes him as about five feet eight to nine inches in height, well built, with an exceedingly prominent bust, very erect, with shoulders thrown far back, his form full and in every way well developed, with dark eyes, a straight nose, 
a round, full face, dark brown hair a little mixed with grey, a prominent forehead, and good teeth. Other witnesses similarly describe him, Mr. Carter saying that his teeth were very fine. He had procured insurance on his life in several different companies to a large amount, the first policy bearing date the 21st day of May, 1868, and the last the 25th day of January, 1872. On the night of the 2nd of February, 1872, a frame shop, in which it is said he was engaged in gilding picture frames and experimenting with a substitute for India rubber, was found to be on fire. After it was consumed, or nearly so, the charred and blackened remains of a man were discovered in the cinders, lying near the chimney which was about the center of the building. Goss was no more seen in the neighborhood, and on the twenty-third day of the same month in which the fire occurred, his wife made application to the insurance companies for payment of the sum insured on his life. Payment being refused, she commenced suits against them, the prisoner appearing as a witness in her behalf. Were the remains found in the fire those of Goss? That Goss went to the building some time during the day preceding the fire is clear. Joseph Loudenslager, the comments on whose testimony you will remember, says he saw Goss, in company with the prisoner, start on the afternoon of that day from the city for this building that they took with them a box four or five feet long, about fifteen inches in depth and width, containing, as the prisoner alleged, machinery for Goss's laboratory. Lewis Engel testified that the prisoner and Gottlieb Engel came to his father's house, a short distance from the shop, after dark, saying the lamp at the shop had gone out, and desiring another to take over, that they did not start back immediately, but, in the language of the witness, stopped about the house after the lamp was ready, and while still there, the prisoner, who went to the door to empty a tumbler or dipper from which he had been drinking, saw the fire and gave the alarm, that he, the witness, the prisoner, and Gottlieb ran over, the prisoner and Gottlieb falling a little behind, that when he reached the shop it was in flames, and not long after the roof and upper part fell in, that he saw no attempt to enter the building or arrest the fire, that he heard no suggestion that any one might be inside until after the building was burned nearly down, when the prisoner came and requested him to go to Baltimore and inform Goss's family of the fire and that Goss was missing. Sarah Moore, the colored woman, called by the defense, testifies that she was living at the time of the fire about one hundred yards from the shop, that, having occasion to go to her door, she saw Goss outside the shop, with a light in his hand, that it was dark and she did not see him in front, but observed his side face as he passed in, and heard him lock the door, that she then sat down to her supper, and soon after finishing it discovered the shop to be on fire. Mr. Smith testifies that he reached the fire when the building was all in flames, that he heard Mr. Cator complaining to the prisoner for not giving the alarm before the fire had gotten so far if he supposed anybody to be within the building, asking him if he desired to create a false alarm by saying Goss's body was in the flames, and that the prisoner replied that he was unacquainted with anybody about the place. 
The witness says he then went nearer the fire, and procuring the assistance of Martin Quinn, found a body, and succeeded in dragging it out of the flames. That, seeing the prisoner again in the crowd, he asked him if he was going to leave the corpse there like that of a dog, while claiming it to be the remains of his brother, upon which the prisoner turned his back and made a noise as if crying. The corpse was then placed in a box and taken to Mr. Lowndes's stable, where it was left for the night. The next morning, this witness says, he went to the scene of the fire, as early as it was light enough to see, and sought among the ashes for Goss's watch and ring, finding nothing but a melted bottle, part of the door hinge, and a few small bones. From the body the hands and feet were off, the skin was burned crisp and blackened, and identification by means of the features and expression was impossible. Mrs. Goss testifies that the corpse was brought home in the evening of the day following the fire, that she identified it as that of her husband. She says, however, she judged only by the size and shape of the head, the neck and body, that in these respects it resembled him. This, it must be observed, falls short of identification, which can only result from observing some peculiar mark by which the individual may be known, or the peculiar expression formed by the features of the face. Mr. Arden, the stepfather of Mrs. Goss, who saw the corpse, also testifies that he observed the same resemblance to Goss in the head, neck, and body. Mrs. Arden, the mother of Mrs. Goss, says the body could not be recognized by reason of its condition, but that the shape of the head and body resembled those of Goss. Dr. Howard testifies that about one year after the fire, he made a careful examination of this body and found it to be that of a man of about five feet eight to ten inches in height, with full chest and shoulders thrown back. This witness further says that upon a critical examination of the mouth, he found that one half the teeth had been lost many months at least before death, two of them directly in front, one being from the upper and the other from the lower jaw. This latter statement is important when considered in connection with that of the witnesses who have described Goss's teeth as regular and fine. On the day preceding the fire, it is testified that Goss drew out of the bank the balance standing in his favor, and his account there closed. Was it his body that was found in the fire? If the inquiry stopped here, it might be unsafe to conclude that it was not. But the inquiry does not stop here. There is other evidence bearing upon this question of a highly important character. On the twenty-second day of June following the fire, and while the suits referred to were pending, a man presented himself at the house of David Mullen, Cooperstown, asking to remain as a boarder, and giving his name as A.C. Wilson. Mr. Mullen says he remained until the sixteenth day of the next November, when he left for Athensville, about two miles distant. Here he remained one week, and then left, appearing at Mrs. Toombs's boarding-house in Newark on November 29th, where he remained nearly seven months. The witnesses who saw this man at Cooperstown and in Newark describe him as stoutly built, five feet eight to nine inches in height, full-chested, shoulders thrown back, with dark brown hair a little mixed with gray, good teeth, 
full, broad forehead, and having, when in Newark, mustache and side whiskers. The witnesses do not all precisely agree in describing his features, but unite as regards his general appearance, and in saying that his face was fine. Several witnesses also state that he had a habit of drinking to excess. These witnesses further testify that he carried on some correspondence with Baltimore, where Goss had resided, sending letters and packages and receiving others in return. One witness, Michael Olray, testifies that, being acquainted in Baltimore, he conversed with Wilson about mutual acquaintances residing there. It is clear he knew the prisoner, for he received a visit from him while at Newark. A pair of pantaloons, which several witnesses recognized as Wilson's, left behind when quitting Newark, have been exhibited. They are darned in the seat and are thus identified. Mrs. Toombs said she noticed that they were very short for him. Lewis Engel testified that when Goss boarded in his father's family, near Baltimore, during the summer or fall preceding the fire, he had such a pair of pantaloons as those exhibited. Says he, the witness, assisted Mrs. Goss to wash them, that he noticed the color, the cord on the side of the leg, and also observed that they were short for Goss when worn. It is further shown that this man wore a large bloodstone ring, such, in general appearance, as the one exhibited here. Some of the witnesses testify that they recognize this as the same. Engel testifies that Goss had a similar ring, being in all respects like this, that he, the witness, wore it sometimes, and that he believes this to be the same, while Mrs. Goss, who describes her husband's ring as being of about the same size and of the same general appearance as this, says it was, according to her recollection, in some respects different. Whether it is possible for any of the witnesses to recognize the ring fully, so as to swear to its identity, is for you to determine. It would seem to the court safer to conclude that the ring worn by Goss at Engels and that seen on the man known as Wilson were alike in size, shape, material, and general appearance. A frock coat is produced, which Mrs. Toombs identifies as a coat worn by Wilson and left behind him when quitting her house. On this coat being exhibited to Mr. Hines, a tailor residing in Baltimore, he testified that he made one in all respects like it, being of precisely the same measure, for Goss. That while he cannot describe to you how he recognizes his own work upon this coat, he tells you that he believes he does. It is shown by several witnesses that Goss, while in Baltimore, had in his possession what is called a double ratchet screwdriver, very peculiar in its construction, and claimed to be his own invention. It is further shown that the man calling himself Wilson had a wooden model of this same screwdriver, which he claimed to have invented. Lewis Engel testifies that when Goss boarded at their house, near Baltimore, he saw him and Utterzook a good deal together, and that Goss frequently called Utterzook doctor. Several of the witnesses who saw Utterzook and the man called Wilson together at Newark testify that Wilson called Utterzook Doc. The significance of the last-mentioned circumstances cannot be overlooked. 
and now, following this evidence, designed to show similarity in person and apparel, in the habit of intemperance, possession of the screwdriver, and in the appellation or title used when addressing Utterzook, the Commonwealth has undertaken to prove the actual identity of Goss and the man known as Wilson, by exhibiting the photograph of Goss to the witnesses who were familiar with Wilson, some of them having been his roommates in the boarding-house. Were it possible to produce Goss himself before these witnesses, as he appeared in life, they would tell us, doubtless, whether he is the same man who was known to them as Wilson, and their judgment would be the highest and best source of information on this subject. As Goss cannot be so produced, possibly the next best means of judging of his identity with Wilson is obtained by producing his photograph, if it be a perfect one, and allowing these witnesses who were familiar with Wilson to base their judgment on it. The picture is, of course, a much less satisfactory means of judging than the presence of the individual would be, because it shows the face in a state of repose, not very frequently observed in the individual, and, showing it on a much smaller scale, the expression of the face is less distinct. Still, where a photograph is perfect, it shows an exact likeness to the extent presented, and can generally be recognized with great ease by those familiarly acquainted with the individual. The photograph exhibited here is shown to be that of Goss. Some of the witnesses who knew the man called Wilson say this picture looks like him, that the shape of the forehead and face is like his, but they do not recognize the picture as his. Their testimony must not be overestimated. It goes no farther than to show resemblance. Other witnesses, more familiar with this man, particularly some of those who boarded in the same house with him, say they recognize Wilson in this picture, one saying he sees the man in it, others it is him, and so on, in varied language expressing the same thing. Too much importance should not be attached to the fact that these witnesses were not able to point out any particular feature by which they recognized the picture as his. If asked to point out the feature or features by which your most intimate friend is distinguished from others, you probably could not do it. Were you to refer to the size of the head, shape of his face, nose, or mouth, you would doubtless find that in all these respects he is not singular but you recognize him instantly, and with absolute certainty, by the peculiar expression which results from the combined effect of all his features and his mind. And this you cannot describe, for words will not portray it. In determining the weight to be attached to the testimony of the witnesses who say they recognize Wilson in the picture, or recognize the picture as his, it is important to remember that when they knew him, his beard was different. What effect the change of beard would have had on the expression and appearance of the picture, you will judge. You will also bear in mind the comments of the defendant's counsel on this testimony, and the fact that the prisoner's sister, who saw Wilson at Mr. Mullins, says she did not see any likeness to him in this photograph. The Commonwealth has further undertaken to show that Goss and this man wrote, not only a similar, but the same hand. 
in this connection emma taylor testifies to the receipt of many letters or notes from wilson and a knowledge of his handwriting two letters one of them addressed to mr mullen signed a c wilson being exhibited to her she says in her judgment they are his handwriting on being shown another letter signed w s goss and testified by mr butler as he believes to be in goss's handwriting she says that in her judgment it is the handwriting of wilson this witness however as you will remember did not exhibit such accurate knowledge of wilson's handwriting as to render her judgment in regard to it very reliable and what she says should therefore be received with great caution end of section forty two